Welcome to the Garage Podcast, presented to you by the Young Adults Group at Salem First Baptist Church. Thanks for tuning in to hear this week's message from Pastor Tyler Hankey. All right, friends, we're in our Advent series, so if you're brand new, Advent does start this week. I started it last week because we're more Christian than others, but what I want to do for the next few weeks is walk you guys through a series on waiting and on unmet expectations, on seasons of our life that really aren't a whole lot of fun. So last week we talked about Zachariah, and the question that Zachariah asks is, are you going to quit? Are you going to quit when things are hard? Are you going to stop praying when there's prayers that are unanswered? Are you going to give up when God doesn't do what you think you want him to do? And Zachariah's life, by any measure, was very, very difficult. The more I thought about it, to go decades of your married life and desperately want your wife to have a child and she just can't, and everyone in your community is assuming that you sinned in a huge way to have God stop you from having a baby, I can't imagine what it must have been like to enter back into the bedroom with her, to, to, to cuddle her, to, to hold her, to, you know, to comfort her when she was incredibly sad for decades. But Zechariah doesn't get, give up, and he doesn't stop praying, and he doesn't stop doing his job, and he doesn't stop honoring his wife and his family, and then God eventually blesses him. So that's the question that he asks, are you going to quit today? I want to talk about patterns because we love patterns in, in a multitude of different ways. We love it when we go to work and then we get a paycheck. That's a pattern. I'm going to give some work and I'm going to get some money. I love that because I expect it. And when that expectation is met, I have a good time. You guys, I just talked about it in our prayer. When you go to school and you put some work in and you study and you get a grade that's good and you're like, yeah, I earned that. That's a pattern. You do the work, you get something in return. We love patterns relationally, we assume a lot of things. We, and, and this leads to a lot of unmet expectations, but we're like, hey, I did my job. I honored the Lord. I went to church. I didn't kill anybody, and I'm halfway decent looking, so I think I kind of deserve a decent partner in this life. And when that doesn't match up on a timeline, we start to get really upset, and we get a little agitated. It's the same with work. You go to work. You do a good job. You expect promotions. You expect money. You expect advancement. And sometimes when that doesn't happen, we get really upset because we love patterns. And God, I would argue, is a God of patterns. It is true all throughout Scripture that when you do a certain amount of work, God's like, okay, here's things I want you to do. Here's things I don't want you to do. And when you do that, I'm going to honor you. And the world loves patterns so much, but we don't want to submit to the Lord, so we create karma. We create a system that says when I do good things, I'm going to get good things. And when I do bad things... I'm going to get bad things. I'm going to get consequences. It's how we try to explain away a life that sometimes doesn't make sense because we just love order. And I would argue karma is simply an idea that was stolen from the Lord and twisted. Because when you read Galatians 6, 7, it says, don't be deceived. Whatever a man sows, he's going to reap. We as Christians call that the law of the harvest. See, we're not so removed from culture that we don't understand it. God's like, no, when you do good things, you're going to get good things. When you do bad things, you're going to get consequences. But here's why you should absolutely despise karma, because it's not good for you. Here's why you should love the law of the harvest and love a God that says, for the most part, yes, if you do certain things, I'm going to give you certain things. When you do others, I'm going to punish you. And yet there's other times where we do good things, and then life is really hard, or we do good things and something is taken from us. Or we do something good and God says, excellent, now I'm going to give you something hard. And we're like, God, I don't get it. Like, I was doing what I was supposed to. And God's like, exactly. 
But God doesn't work in karma. God works in the law of the harvest. And then beyond that, God works from a position of authority. Here's why you as a believer and, and anyone listening online, if you're not a believer or if you're in here and you're not a believer, here's why you shouldn't like karma. If karma was legitimately real, if that law was a fundamental law of the universe, where if I do good things, I get good things. I do bad things, I get bad things. If that was true, here's why that's a horrible move. God suddenly, in that moment that that law becomes real, suddenly isn't powerful. He's not in control anymore. You are. If that law is real and you can control all the outcomes of your life by doing good things and therefore getting good things, you have turned God into a vending machine where you approach him and you say, here's the good things that I've done. Now give me my things. Give me my paycheck, so to speak, and go about life. God suddenly does not matter. God is invisible. God is inconsequential if karma is real. The difficult part for you is that if God is real and there's an authority above this so-called karma, if there's an authority above the law of the harvest, then here's what I suddenly discover. I cannot throw myself into my life on autopilot. Sometimes you get things that really, by any measurable standard, you don't deserve, and sometimes life isn't fair. And so the question this morning is, what do I do in my life when it's not fair? What do I do when God moves from this consistent pattern that he's had with me for a number of years where I get married and my wife doesn't get pregnant or I go into a job and I'm not promoted or I go into a job and I'm let go or I go into a friendship and we've been doing really good for a number of years, suddenly something happens and the friendship's blown up. What, what do I do when I've done good things and I see other people and they're not doing good things and they get all of the accolades in this life, they get all the things that I want and I don't. What do I do when I'm doing my best to follow the Lord and he keeps abruptly changing my life in really painful ways? What do I do so that I don't become angry and bitter and let my faith fall apart? How in the world do we do this? Well, in order to build a, an emotional constitution that's actually strong, in order to be men and women that can endure hard things, we need to become the kind of people that have grit. So this morning we're talking about grit and emotional strength. And to do that, I'm going to read a story. So this is the story of Joseph. It starts here in verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. Sorry, uh, book of Luke. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Skipping to chapter 2, verse 13. When the Magi had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, 
for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt, I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up. He took the child and his mother and he went to the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. So there's our story. Here's our, our character that we're talking about. This is Joseph, the father of Jesus. And here's the question that you're asking. How in the world do I develop the kind of emotional personality, constitution that can endure hard things? How can I be a man that's gonna lead my family? How can I be a woman that's gonna lead my family? How can I be a friend that's really gonna be there for people? How can I lead businesses? How can I move into this world with any kind of influence when life honestly is very, very hard from time to time? How can I love God when sometimes he seems distant or he seems to work in ways that I genuinely just don't understand? Let's learn from Joseph, because arguably this man is one of the greatest fathers in all of Scripture. And what's frustrating is we know very little about the man, almost nothing. But there's three things that I want to walk you through to understand who this man is and how he can shape your life, not only in this Christmas season, but also throughout the rest of your life. So let's try to understand Joseph to the best of our ability. Here's the first thing that I want you to do. I want you to look back at the story. If you've got your Bibles out, I want you to underline verse 19 of chapter 1. Verse 19, it says, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law. Stop right there. Here's the first thing that you need to understand about this man. And this is the thing, honestly, that I think escapes most believers. When you start to ask the question, what do I do to develop myself? What book should I read? What person should I listen to? What, what interview should I go to? It's like, hold on, stop, and begin to understand who you are as a believer. Where do we get all of our marching orders? Where do I understand who I am as a person? Where do I understand my God, who, yes, is invisible, but desperately wants to be known? Where do I go? I go to Scripture. It says of this man. So before you know anything really at all about him, it says, here's what I want you to know that's first and, and primary and most important. He was a man faithful or loyal or steadfast to the law. But he doesn't have a Bible like you and I do. So what law are we talking about? This is the Mosaic law. Joseph though he was a humble carpenter in a no-name city in the Middle East, was desperately faithful to the law. So he, may, he might not know much, but here's what he knows. God is real. God's gonna reward me or punish me according to the things that I do to follow him and become the kind of man that he wants me to be. He was faithful to the law. How in the world does this shape who he is? Well, one of the things that you learn when you read the rest of Luke 
you discover something. So Jesus is born, right? And, and yes, he's God. Yes, he's perfect, but he's still a little boy. He's a very real human being. And Jewish law clearly states, when you're a woman and you give birth to a boy, if he's your first child, he's the one that opens your womb, you need to honor God with this little boy and take him to the temple. We discover this as we read the rest of Luke. It says this, because the law of the Lord states, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, verse 24, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. If you read Exodus 13, you start to discover all the different things that were necessary in the Mosaic law for children. So if you were a mom and you gave birth to a little boy, he was set apart. He was different. You set apart this little boy to the Lord. He's gonna, he's gonna serve purposes to God. Not that your other children won't, but your firstborn son, he holds a special place of honor. Now, think about this though. You're a young couple in the Middle East. You've got no money. You've got no connection. You've been told to, to move around. So you're not stable. On top of that, emotionally, this is a weird marriage, right? Like he got married to her, yes, but she's pregnant with what he assumes is another man's child until the Lord tells him otherwise. And they haven't consummated their marriage. And so if you're a dude, that sucks. Like, congratulations, you're married. Don't touch her though. Like that's messed up. And so there's this tension here. Joseph has every reason to not obey the Lord. And yet he remembers this little verse in Exodus from the book of the law. And he goes, Mary, you know what we need to do? We need to take Jesus to the temple and we need to, we need to consecrate him to the Lord. We need to go get a pair of, of pigeons or turtle doves and sacrifice them so that everyone knows this is our son. He is set apart to the Lord. We bless him, we honor him, and we honor the Lord. This shows you that of all the things Joseph could care about, he cares about scripture. He cares about the law. He cares about what God thinks about him as a person. And so the question to you, do you care about what God thinks about you as a person. And by that I mean, when you look at his law, when you look at scripture, you're like, yeah, this book matters. What it says about me and what I'm to do matters. The laws that it has about marriage, they matter. The laws that it has about me as a man matter. The laws that it has about me as a woman matter. When I read it, I don't just see a good idea, I see the only idea that matters. Does scripture utterly dominate your life, friends? Because if it doesn't, you and Joseph aren't on the same page. You and God aren't on the same page. And you walk through this and you gotta ask yourself some questions. Why in the world, why in the world would Moses do what he did when God says, take your staff and touch the water? Why do that? Because God says, that's how I rip oceans in half. Okay, why, why in the world should you go to church why at all should this matter to you? Well, because when I look at scripture, it says in Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, this is how I stay spiritually protected. Do you understand that in the world that you live in, there are real spiritual forces that hate you? And one of the blessings God gives you in the family of God is he says, enter into a family, a spiritual family, this church, put yourself under pastoral authority and put yourself in relationship with friends. There you will be safe. There, there is protection against spiritual forces that are real and evil and hate you. So when people ask, why in the world would you go to church? You say, because I want to be safe. Because I want to be protected. Because I want to protect other people. 
Is there something in you that looks at those around your table and those that are in the church and says, you know what, you matter to me. I've got a responsibility to you. I'm praying for you. I'm keeping you safe. Your life is not only about your development, it's about the development of everyone around you. And if scripture matters, that rule is in scripture, that law is in scripture. Here's another one. Why in the world would you read and study your Bible? Why? It's a really old book, and a lot of times it doesn't make any sense, right? Like, you, you can be honest. Sometimes you read scripture, you're like, I don't get it. Like, I know it's the, the, the word of God, but it makes no sense. And yet, I discover something when I read Romans 12, Ephesians 6. How in the world do you safeguard your mind from all the bad ideas out there? It says you need to go through a renewal process. Is this something that you're practicing, right? We could give a sermon on Romans 12 by itself, but I won't because we would be here for an hour. It says begin the process of renewing your mind. So my question, and don't, this is rhetorical, what are you doing on a regular basis to renew your mind? Because Satan doesn't stop, the world doesn't stop, your flesh never quits and continually gives you bad ideas. So what are you doing to flush out bad ideas and take in good ones? What are you doing to renew your mind? Because if you don't, you're not safe. Ephesians 6 is one of those things. It gives you a list. Here's things I want you to practice to keep your mind safe. If you don't, bad ideas are gonna come in and bad ideas become bad beliefs and bad beliefs become bad identities. And you're gonna walk yourself into a horrible life that you don't like that hurts you, and you're gonna know the only person to blame is you. What are you doing to keep yourself safe? Here's another one. This, this question is asked directly in scripture, Psalm 119. How can a young man, or I would say, how can a young person keep their way pure? The Bible says of itself, live according to your word, God. I hide your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So the question again to you is what are you doing to hide the word of God in your heart? What practice of meditation are you participating in? What practice of memorization are you participating in that when you get bad ideas or full-on spiritual attack, your mind's like, uh-uh, I've been protected. I got my answer to the lie that the enemy's giving me. So ask yourself the question, what, what do I believe about Scripture? Do I believe the th same thing about Scripture that clearly Joseph does? When you look at your life, why should you approach friendships and romantic relationships the way that scripture says? Why? Because God says, I built men and I know how they work. And I built women and I know how they work. Read Proverbs, friends. It's gonna give you very frank information on both genders. Ladies, do you wanna know what it says of you? It says you're tricky and you're manipulative. Okay? Gentlemen, you wanna know what it says about you? That you're dumb and mean. Okay, that all of us have this potential to do horrific things to our friends, right? So funny aside, you know men that have been evil. You know men that have been mean, that have been dumb, and we know women that have been manipulative and vindictive. We know this. We know this of people and of life, and the Bible says, I warned you. God says, I warned you. I built women. I built men, and I know how they work, and I know how you need to protect yourself. I know how you need to date because I designed it. I know how you need to be married because I made it. I know how you need to have sex because I built that too. So am I approaching life by saying, I'm gonna take the Bible as a good idea sometimes, or am I looking at life going, all of this is messed up. Scripture's the only thing that makes sense. 
It's the only thing guiding me in this insane life. Joseph could have looked at all the law of God and said, you know what, it's from an old guy, long dead, and it doesn't matter. But Joseph still takes his infant adopted son, travels to Israel, and consecrates him with a pair of doves. Because he goes, you know what, the law of God says so. The law of God says so. So if God says it, are you doing it? And if not, why? What about you reads the word and goes, eh? My friends, that's an arrogance. I'll just tell you what it is. It's an arrogance. It's an apathy, too, that I would read the word of God and not care. So I'm just here to like, love you, bless you, encourage you. If you're like, man, I haven't read the word of God in months. Like, is God mad at me? D don't ask that question. Ask the question, is it good? Is the word of God good? And if it's good, if it's the best good, why am I not in it? Why am I not drinking it in? Why am I not applying it to myself? It's okay. If this past couple months have been garbage for you, don't worry about it. Let's just get into the word. Let's start over. Okay, I bless you. I don't shame you. I don't guilt you. Let's just get into it. Here's the second thing. When you look at this man, would you have guessed that one of the things you need to do to build emotional grit is to become more compassionate? No, I wouldn't. Because when I think about grit and I think about determination and steadfastness, I don't want more relationships piling on me. Because even though you love your friends, they're weighty. They've got emotional baggage. And sometimes when you're with them, you're like, gosh, I love you, I do, but I'm tired. Because our friends are tiring. And they always will be. And that's okay. Your spouse will be unbelievably tiring. So if you can't handle your friend, don't get married. Okay, I'm being dead serious. If you can't handle normal friendship relationship, don't you dare get married. They're not gonna be better for you, they're gonna be worse. Because marriage is all about sacrifice and giving. It's not this weird overflow of um, emotional and romantic feelings. All of that is work. And when I look at Joseph, what I see, and this to me is the thing that stuck out this year, this is the, the most beautiful thing to me about his life. Like think about this guy. This is, and think about your life when it's not fair, and then think about Joseph's life. He's a good man. He honored his father, you can tell, because he took his father's trade, right? So he's, he clearly has a good relationship with family. He's got a good standing in the community because the community was like, hey, go marry Mary. Like, if you're a bad dude, no one's throwing a wife at you because they're like, you need to get your stuff together. You're not ready for a woman. Joseph was ready for a woman. He worked hard. He has a trade. He's got a future he's gonna provide for this woman. It's gonna be beautiful. And then when he's meeting her and she reveals, hey, I'm pregnant. Look, you and me read this and we romanticize the story. We're like, ah, virgin birth, that's incredible. He has no paradigm for this. He's never met a pregnant virgin before. So in Joseph's mind, he's like, I've got a simple math equation. I didn't sleep with her. She's pregnant. That equals she cheated on me. And it's different than me and you in relationships at this time. When you're engaged, it, yay for you. That doesn't matter. Okay, legally, it doesn't matter. Sexually, it doesn't matter, right? Like nothing has been committed yet. You've given them a ring and that's beautiful, that's cool. In this day and age, when you're betrothed, you're married. The only reason they're not fully a unit yet is because the man needs time to go build an addition on his dad's house. So you can just thank God right now that that's not how you do it. You get married and you leave. They get married and they're like, so I'm blowing out the east wall. We're gonna live right next to you. And then as soon as you finish building the addition, then you take her in. 
And at the wedding ceremony, then you go and you consummate the marriage at the ceremony. Awkward. Like if everyone was waiting for you to have sex with your spouse and then you come out to the reception, um, no thank you. But he's waiting to be married to this woman and she says, I'm pregnant. Is that fair? No, it's not fair to the guy. He did what he was supposed to. He was an honorable man. He was faithful to the law. God says so. And yet she's pregnant and he's like, what in the world do I do? This is not the life that I wanted. But it specifically says, and you know that this is true, like he had to have gone to his friends and told this story later. Otherwise, how do we know it, right? So he had to have told people and the story got out. He goes, yeah, I wanted to leave her. In fact, I was going to. And this is what I love about Joseph. He wasn't going to do it publicly. In Jewish law, if you discover that your wife or betrothed slept with someone else, you can publicly shame this woman. You're going to get a certificate of divorce. She's never going to marry again, ever. No dude is going to touch this woman. The whole community would have shamed her. If she's got unbelievably great parents, maybe they keep her, but probably not. Because they're like, oh no, you disgraced us, get out. Mary would have been resigned to the life of a prostitute 100%. She would have just gone and slept with people for money the rest of her life, could never do any other job, and she would have died even earlier than they did back then with an utterly broken life. But Joseph goes, you know what? We're just gonna break this off quietly. I'll make up some excuse. You go marry somebody else. I'll marry somebody else. We're gonna be fine. How kind is that? Look, if you're gonna have any shot at making it in this life with all the different ways that God's gonna change your direction and sometimes give you things that you genuinely don't like, one of the only ways you make it is grow in compassion. Grow in empathy for other people. Because if you don't, you're gonna start hating everybody when they, when they mess your life up. Like if you've got a friend and they're just a lot of work, like they're a good person, they are, but drama just seems to follow them. If you don't grow in compassion, you will leave that person in the dust. You'll never be compassionate with them. You'll never love them. They'll never grow because no one's gonna stick around long enough. But if you're the type of person that says, you know what? Regardless of where you failed, you're mine and I'm gonna own you, I'm gonna love you, they're gonna grow and you're gonna grow. You're stronger than most people. If you can grow in your ability to not quit on others, friends, you will lead the biggest churches, you will lead the biggest organizations, you will lead the healthiest families because I'm telling you right now, kids are a disappointment. Kids are gonna hurt you. Okay, if you're the type of person that says, when things are going well, I'm with my kids. But when, when they start screwing around, when they start messing up and I'm gonna just get emotionally distant, your children will fail even more because they don't have a dad or a mom that knows how to stick around. Some of you know this. Because when you messed up, your parents left emotionally or maybe even physically. And they're like, my son or my daughter didn't behave in the way that I wanted to, so I'm done. Do you wanna be that parent? Of course you don't. You wanna stick around even when life sucks. And so one of the ways you do that is you grow in compassion. How in the world do you do that? Number one, remind yourself of identity, both yours and theirs. This is how you begin to grow in compassion. Number one, grow in your identity and theirs. Who are they? Regardless of how they are treating you or others, they were created by God. If they're believers, they're a son or daughter of God. 
even if they're not believers, they are made in the image of God. Therefore, they have immediate, complete, and total value. You can't dismiss them. You can't. And if they have any integrity in the scriptures, they can't dismiss you, even though sometimes emotionally they start to do that. The other thing you remind yourself is they're broken by sin. Sometimes your friends, and, and you'll come and you'll tell me, it's like, man, I, I do, I love this person, but the way they're treating me is awful. And what I remind you is they're broken. Like you have a friend, you're like, why in the world would they do that? And I'm like, they're broken by sin. What did you expect? No, they will not treat you perfectly. No, they will not always remember you. No, they will not always be emotionally close. They're gonna hurt you. When I remember that, I don't turn them into an enemy. I turn them into a friend that needs help. When I begin to emotionally divorce myself from people just because they're difficult, I've turned that person into something worthless. When I'm like, oh man, you're hard. Okay, I'm gonna back up. I'm gonna get away from you. You can't, friends. This is someone God made. This is someone maybe that God died for if they're a believer, not that he didn't die for everybody else. I'm just saying, if, if they've accepted that, they are a son or a daughter of the king. When I remind myself of that, I grow in compassion. The other thing is, so first thing, remember identity. Two, remember their story. And some of you are like, I don't even know their story. Okay, well, there's where you go to work. What is their story? This I remind people of most often. Okay, whenever I meet someone that's bitey or agitated or arrogant, my number one question is, tell me about your parents. Number one. Okay, no one, I mean, yes, we all have a sin nature, but some people have this edginess to it, this bitiness to them. Friends, that's learned. That is learned. When you're like, why does this person, like whenever there's, you know, some of us can handle sarcasm, others can't. Like sometimes there's little failures in our groups and we'll tease other people, they latch on like there's blood in the water and they are a shark. Y'all know that person. Some of you have that person in your family, right? Like, like Thanksgiving for you is just a bloodbath. Like you make a mistake and your family just absolutely eviscerates you and you're like, what happened? And so then you come back and as much as you don't want to, sometimes you do that to your friends. They make a mistake, they do something dumb and you just waste them. And they're left sitting there going, wait, I thought you cared about me. And in your heart, you genuinely do, but you've been taught to be an a-hole. Okay, that's learned. And so when people are like, why did they hurt me? And I'm like, do you know their parents? And they're like, well, no. And I'm like, okay, let me tell you, their parents are monsters. And they taught them how to be a jerk. Even though they don't wanna be, that is a learned behavior. Or some people, you've gone through multiple different dating relationships and they've all been bad because you've never been taught a system of how to spot an amazing guy versus a donkey and you've been picking bad dude after bad dude after bad dude and then you take that into your friendships or future relationships and there's a good dude that genuinely likes you and you can't even see him. And the good guys are like, why in the world do they not notice me? And I'm like, they've never been taught how. Same with women. Okay, it goes both ways. And you're like, why doesn't this person notice me? And I'm like, they've never been taught how. And all they know how to do is go from broken relationship to broken relationship to broken relationship because that's all they know. The more I know about you and the more I know about me and what God has done for both of us, the more I'm gonna grow in compassion and the more I will build emotional grit. This will be required of all of you that have any level of health. 
It is not expected of you that you are only going to hang out with people that are your own health level, right? If you are healthy, God says, okay, look for everyone below your level of health and go love them. That is required of you. That is expected of you. And yet if you've been trained to only go to relationships that are fun and easy, you will miss out on all the work God wants you to do, all of it. So he says, I want you to grow in compassion. And here is the final thing that Joseph shows us. He's unbelievably coachable. Okay, if you could get one thing from this entire message, I want you to get this one. Yes, faithful to the law, beautiful, compassionate, beautiful, coachable. This is absolutely key. Joseph is approached four different times in this story by an angelic presence that says, Joseph, you need to change course. Now, some of you are like, well, okay, Tyler, I would do the same thing if an angel showed up to me and was like, hey, go do this thing. But you want to know what? I don't think you would. And I'm not trying to insult you. I wouldn't either. If you're not the person that jumps to this first one, faithful to the law, and does what it says, you're not the type of person that would obey an angel. You're not, I promise you. You have more information available to you and more power of the Holy Spirit in you than Joseph did. So when I look at this life and I ignore what God has said to me, then no, I don't believe of any of us, myself included, that I would listen to an angel. I don't. Like if an angel came to you today and said, I want you to move. Okay, I want you to move. I want you to go to a state you've never been to. I want you to pick up a job you've never done. I want you to leave all your friends and family and I want you to marry someone that has some, some character flaw. Would you do it? Now, I'm not saying Mary had a character flaw. I'm saying at the beginning, Joseph might have thought so until he believed that it was Jesus in, in his wife. But, but honestly, would you do it if God was like, move to a state? Like, all right, I'm up for an adventure. No, go to one you've never been to. Okay. And go do this job. You've never done it before. Okay. And go marry this person you don't really know. Okay. Would you? I love all of you. I wouldn't. I wouldn't do it. I'd like to believe that I would, but if you're not the type of person that's gonna be faithful to the law that you know, why would you be faithful to the crazy adventure that you're not sure of? He's unbelievably coachable, and he changes directions multiple times. Here's the problem. You and me have not been brought up in a culture of obedience We've been brought up in a culture of rebellion. The spirit of our country. Now look, I love the United States. Genuinely love it. But our entire ethos is rebellion. We love it. We celebrate it. And in some ways, yes, that has led us to beautiful things. It really has. And yet our entire emotional buildup is around, you know what? I'm going to go do my own thing. We have not been brought up in a culture that says, okay, God, whatever you say, I'm going to obey it. And this presents a problem. To, to illustrate this, a number of years ago, my wife and I were, um, we were renting a place and we wanted a pet. We hadn't had one before, so we were like, let's go adopt a dog. Now, my wife goes through these hills and valleys of emotional strength, and she was in a valley. All right, she was weak, which opened her up to a very, very bad idea. I was also weak. I just kind of went along with it. She's like, you know what we should adopt? And I was like, what, babe? She's like, a great Dane. And I was like, yes, that sounds like a great idea. If those words leave your mouth, you're not in a good place. You're not in a good place. And so here's the thing. We didn't adopt a puppy. We adopt a full-grown great Dane, 140 pounds, 
And this sweet little girl, wherever she wanted to go, she went. Like the breeder did not train this dog at all. So this was 140 pounds of screw you. I'm going to do what I want. And so when we would go on a walk, I was like, I'm the only one that can walk this dog. My kids can't. And we tried it. We practiced in the backyard. Gavin grabbed on and Ivy was the dog's name. She just took off and Gavin was like, Ugh! a rag doll. This dog did not even recognize that he was there. My wife genuinely didn't have the grip strength to hold on to this animal. And so I went to my father because he was a dog trainer in another life. He's done everything. But I was like, dad, I, I don't know what to do with this animal. Like, we've adopted her. I love her. She's a great dog, super friendly. But when she wants to go, she goes. He's like, okay, leash her up. Let's go for a walk. And so he's like, let me, let, me let me show you something. So my father, bigger frame than I am, he's also got a presence that says, back up. You're going to do what I want. <laughs> and so this was like a battle of unstoppable forces. But here's what dad did, and I loved it. He leashed her up. He's like, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take her on a walk and notice what she does. So he took her on a walk, and she walks down the road. She's like, I want to go this way, and we're going to go this way. And dad was like, here's what I'm going to do. And he abruptly changed directions dozens of times. So they start going down. He's like, bam, immediately pulls a 180. And she's like, Ugh! and turns around. And she's like, okay, we're going to go this way. And so she starts walking, and he's like, bam, and he popped directions again. After the 30th time, something changed. She wasn't looking at the road anymore. She just looked up at him. She's like, where are we going? And with ease, he was like, we're going to go this way. And he would turn. And she was like, all right, we're going this way. And then he would turn again. She's like, all right, I'm going to go this way. She wasn't looking at the road anymore. She was looking at her master. She was looking at the one that was going to keep her safe. She's like, I believe you're going to take me somewhere that's good. I trust you. So we're going to go this way. And now we're going to go this way. And friends, that might be exactly what God is doing with you. He's leashed you up. It's like, we're going to go for a walk. You're like, all right, I love going on a walk. I'm going for marriage. And God's like, no. And he pops your collar and like, Ugh! like, hold on, that's a good thing. That's a good direction. He's like, it is, but you don't trust me yet. So let's keep going. You're like, I want that job. He's like, nope, pop. And he pulls you. And in that moment, though, it's a funny example, that hurts. When you're gunning for a relationship and God's like, no. You're gunning for a position at work. God's like, no. You're gunning for just a normal friendship. God's like, no. Have you ever wondered sometimes how you show up to church and there's hundreds of people and yet you still feel alone? You're like, how in the world did I show up to a group this big and I'm still not known? Could it be that it's not the group's fault? It's not even your fault. It's God saying, I'm gonna isolate you for a little bit. I'm gonna isolate you because you don't trust me yet. I know you want a date, but you're not ready. I know you want marriage, but you're not ready. I know you want the job, but you'd screw it up if you got it. Or it would screw you up. Maybe you would be perfect for the job, but God says no. So you're gunning for a position. You're gunning for a relationship, and God says, eyes up here. You haven't learned to do that yet. God says, eyes up here. Look at me. No, no, no. Look at me. And so you start to get this picture that you've been running this whole time in the direction you thought was good. And God says, look, that is good, but you need to stay with me. God is more concerned with your intimacy with him and your obedience than he is you succeeding in the things that you want to go get. 
God is more concerned with you following him than he is your marriage. God is more concerned with you following him than he is your job. God is more concerned with you honoring what he says to do than you succeeding at anything. Look at Joseph. He had everything ready to have a great job, to have a great marriage, to have a great family, and God was like, follow me. Uh -uh -uh, Follow me. No, 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 follow me, eyes up here. But here's what I want you to notice. When you look at Joseph's life, do you think that he wanted to marry a pregnant woman? No, that's scary and, and genuinely unfair. Do you think he wanted to adopt a son? I don't think so. In that culture, to have a biological child that would inherit all of your, your, your land, your property, your, your job, your title, all of it, that was the dream. And God's like, no, you're gonna adopt this one. You're not even gonna name him Joseph. You're gonna name him Yeshua. That was a beautiful dream of a Jewish man. Name your firstborn son after yourself. That was a rite of passage in that world. And God's like, no. Do you think that he wanted to run for his life for the first few years of his marriage? No. Hunted by the most powerful human being on earth at the time? No. Do you think that he wanted to go to Egypt? No. You don't travel in that day and age. You stay where you're at. You know people, you're safe. Do you think he wanted to start a small business that would fail because he had to pick it up and move it? Twice. No. And there's going to be things that God's going to call you to do. And in your life right now, you cannot imagine. And I don't even want you to imagine it because you can't imagine it. There will be jobs God will have for you that you never dreamed you would have. There will be relationships that you will enter into, beautiful ones, but you never would have guessed it. I joke about this all the time, but younger me, high school me, even early college me would never have picked Audrey. I wouldn't have done it because I was arrogant, I I was foolish. I had things on the list of what I wanted in a wife that should not have been on a list. Okay, it was utter pride. And when I look at the life that I have now, when I look at the woman that I married, there was no list that I could have created that would have dreamed up the woman that I married. And some of you are trying to build lives right now. You've got lists for your spouse. You've got lists for your job. You've got lists for your future. And God's like, I love you. I'm scrapping the whole thing. I'm scrapping the whole list. But again, when you look at Joseph's life, do you think at the end of it, he looked back and was like, man, I wish I wouldn't have married Mary. I wish I wouldn't have adopted Jesus. I wish that I wouldn't have had that adventure with my wife for those first few years. No. He will go down for the rest of all history as one of the most incredible dads that's ever lived. He got to protect the Virgin Mary. He got to keep her safe. He got to keep our Savior, safe. Joseph picked up baby Jesus and booked it through the desert for years. Our Savior lived because of his dad. Do you think Joseph looked at the end of, or near the end of his life, do you think he looked back and thought, man, this sucks, I don't want it. Not a chance. For some of you, your life is so good and it's so beautiful in the future, you can't see it yet. And all I want to tell you this morning is look up. Look up at your God and trust where he's going to take you, even if right now it kind of sucks. Trust him. Now, to help you put this in your heart, put it in your brain, I've got a few questions for you to jump into. Question number one, why does trust take courage? Why does believing that God is good take courage? What was Joseph risking by marrying Mary? 
What could his life have been like? Look at all the things he gave up. Question number two, what are ways that we can balance pursuing righteousness or the right thing with being compassionate? Because sometimes those two seem at war with one another. Joseph could have divorced her and he would have been right. But compassion says otherwise. Question three, how do you diagnose a hard heart? Do you have one right now? How do you soften your heart? Question four, what does it mean to trust God and what is the basis of that trust? How can we grow in our trust of God? And question five, what are the reasons we don't obey? And how can I grow in my ability and desire to obey God more? Thanks for tuning in to the Garage Podcast. We hope the message has made you think deeper about faith and will strike up new conversations as you go about your week. If you want to hear more messages like this, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Have a great week.